Back chat. Back chat. Back chat. Politics and current affairs. Backpack. Back chat. Back chat. Your alternative to talk back. You are listening to Backchat here on FBI Radio, the freshest wrap of news and current affairs. I'm Swetha Das. And I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. As always, we're going to give you the news you haven't heard on your airwaves this week. First up is Sophie Johnston from the National Youth Commission to discuss the controversial uni fees hike for arts and humanities courses. After that, we're joined by Sam Elkin from the Roberta Perkins Law Project, Australia's first trans-led legal service. But we want to hear from you. Do you think that increasing uni fees for art students is fair? Join in on the conversation and text us in on 0409945945 or tweet us at Backchat FBI. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. Man, I keep thinking about the current year 12s. You know, coronavirus has made the HSC a nightmare. I can't imagine, you know, doing your final year exams, not knowing, you know, what's in the future. Youth unemployment is at 16% and overseas gap years are out of the question. Now, if they want to pursue tertiary education next year, they have been dealt another blow. The Morrison government has proposed uni fee changes that would ramp the costs of arts and humanities by over 100% in some courses. Sadly, it's meant to encourage people to study job-ready degrees, like maths or IT. But will these hikes actually achieve what they're meant to? We're joined by Sophie Johnston, Commissioner with the National Youth Commission to explain what these changes mean for the next generation of students. Hi, Sophie. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Our absolute pleasure. So what do these proposed fee changes mean for students and what can they expect when when these changes are introduced? Some humanities courses, the fees will increase by up to 113%, um, and um, some of the uh, mathematics and STEM type courses, um, the fees are significantly reduced. But when you look at even the, I guess, the government's good news stories about some of the courses um, that have had reduced fees, the government hasn't actually matched the the decrease. So the overall funding per student is much less. So even though the intent is to have people going into these STEM courses as this, um, you know, to prepare young people to be job ready, as the government says, the resourcing that those courses are actually receiving um, could be significantly less. And, you know, you think of the quality of the education that young people will be getting, it could be much, much, much worse. So what about international students? Do these changes affect them? Not in terms of fees, but in terms of learning quality, you know, it, the, we've, we've just seen figures that at least one in five international students have been returned to Australia and international fees um, contribute about 26% of overall public um, funding. So in terms of the quality of education, in terms of how much money is actually going into our universities, it's likely that we're going to see class sizes increasing quite dramatically. You know, we could see a a big push to online learning, reduction of teaching um, uh, capabilities. Uh, You know, all of these things are are really quite scary in a time when we're talking about the need for, you know, job readiness and preparing young people for the workforce and going into, you know, post-corona, this kind of really uncertain time. You know, a, a hit to education is the absolute last thing that we need, but it's what the government's gone for. 
So the move might actually mean more students study arts and humanities subjects. So how does that work? This, this whole idea that there could be a lot less money going into the universities, it's likely that um, they will prioritise higher student numbers in those humanities courses because there's more money in it. Um, and, you know, <laughs> so it's, I guess it's this, it, it's really a, like it's a really illogical um, sort of model that the government's put forward. There's just this tweaking around at the edges where they haven't really considered what we actually need. Um, you know, they, they're talking about STEM um, and, and the mathematics being um, more um, job prospects. But when the Commission's been going around for the last couple of years um, talking to employers and talking to industry, and what they're saying is that what they need is the problem-solving skills, the communication, the critical thinking, those soft skills that you actually develop in the humanities. Uh, so it's, it doesn't make any sense. It's quite a bizarre change, um, and I don't think it's going to achieve what the government has intended. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swetha and Shami. We're speaking with Sophie Johnston from the National Youth Commission about how uni fee hikes announced recently uh, and what those effects are going to have on young people. Absolutely. Earlier on, we asked you guys if you think increasing uni fees for art students is fair and we've got some texts in. Remember, you can text in and, and join in on the conversation on 0409 Now, Joe from Barara has said, TBH, I'm not really thinking about uni fees when it comes to choosing a course because I only have to pay for it in increments later down the track. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. So, I mean, Sophie, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think people won't care about these changes because of HEX? So when the, when the HEX system was first introduced, the modelling was all based on um, predicted future earnings. So courses like medicine and law where you're going into careers where you're likely to earn much more of the course of your lifetime, the fees are higher for it. Whereas courses in humanities, they're a bit lower because the um, you know, future earnings are likely to be much less. This modelling does the complete opposite of that. It puts us in a situation where um, young people could be leaving um, degrees with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt and going into jobs you know, where they might be earning just above the minimum wage um, and that sort of thing. So it, for me, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of young people who do see it as a deterrent. Some might not, but regardless, it still puts us in this position where we're saddling a whole heap of debt onto young people um, as this sort of punishment, I guess, for trying to educate themselves and create opportunities for themselves. Um, and, and, and that's, you know, what you're doing when you're going to university. Mm, yeah, well, you know, we've got a couple more texts. Um, Kira from Summerhill says, I think increasing uni fees might make people choose the wrong degree for them because it's the less expensive option and then drop out halfway through, which is a really good point. You don't want, mm. you know, <laughs> how much it costs to decide your future. Holly from Potts Point texted in and said, I feel like this actually makes science degrees more accessible and makes getting a job easier. Now, I mean, that's a great point. Do you think there's any merit to the argument that STEM subjects lead to greater job prospects? When you, when you look at Victoria, the Daniel Andrews government made TAFE courses free in those priority areas, but there wasn't this sell-off that the Morrison government um, is pushing where other courses suffer as, as a result. So, you know, of, of course we need to be um, uh, incentivising young people to be going into... Um, 
you know, careers where there's, there's likely to be more job prospects. But firstly, there's that reduction of overall government funding in those courses anyway. Um, and also, it's, it's coming at it from the wrong angle. What we're hearing from young people is that there's no sort of... There's a real lack of career education in schools. And what we need is... Um, is resourcing to go into into schooling so that we're actually talking to young people about careers much earlier on, you know, from seven um, at least. And um, again, we should be encouraging young people to go into careers that they're passionate about. Um, and humanities, those soft skills that you're learning, they're really transferable, particularly in this new workforce we're talking about, where you need to be adaptable, you need to have those communication, the critical thinking, and that sort of those sorts of skills. So the youth unemployment rate has soared during the coronavirus pandemic. As a youth commissioner, what's the sentiment amongst young people when it comes to education and job prospects? Look, it's it's a pretty scary time. I know just in my networks, uh, a lot of people who have lost their jobs, um, who have you know fallen through the cracks of the job job seeker payment, and it's a, it's a really scary time. You know, people. I think people feel quite. Um, Quite, quite nervous and unsure about where to next. You know, we hear government talking about this new normal and this new economy, but there's actually no... We, we have no idea what that looks like. It's all just sort of buzzwords, and young people aren't in the room for that. We're sort of just um, hearing these new spins on, um, you know, on the news cycle. Um, and I think what we should be talking about is, is a youth jobs guarantee where... Um, Basically, what that looks like is that um, every young person um, who's, who, who wants to be um, employed is guaranteed either some sort of training um, or skill development or employment within three months um, of, of losing education or employment. And I think that's something the government really should be looking at. It makes sense that there are calls to boost employment opportunities, as you said, especially during the pandemic. But do you think the proposed fee changes will achieve this? I, look, I don't. Um, the the fee changes again. It's just this tweaking around at the edges. It's not actually addressing the issues itself. You know, this was a problem before coronavirus, where um, young people were going into universities and coming out the side, um, out the other side, and going into jobs that had nothing to do with what they'd studied. Um, and part of that problem is is again this real this real tweaking around the edges, not actually. Um, addressing the skills um, and and the learning that young people need to be um, able to get the jobs that we want to be going into to be um, productive in the work workforce, but just um, adapting fees without actually putting any real funding toward education is not the way that you go about that. You mentioned before the quality of some courses has been decreased. Do you think we should? be having a discussion about the quality of uni courses instead to ensure people are better prepared to enter the job market? Absolutely. And, and again, this is what we were hearing before COVID when the, the Youth Commission's been going around um, holding hearings in different cities and, um, and regional towns across the country. And what we've been hearing is that um, employers want young people with those real transferable skills that can be adaptable. Um, so there was already this shortage um, and this this struggle with um, upskilling young people in those areas, which just goes to show that the universities, um, there was this lack of quality already in the universities. And what this 
fee proposal is likely to uh, is likely to produce is is a, a really hard hit to that area. You know, higher um, an increase in student numbers um, in classes, lower um, teaching um, quality and lower teaching capability. It's a pretty scary time to be thinking that the thing that you know the exact thing that. Um, enables us to be employable and to go into the workforce and to be productive is the thing that the government's attacking right now. It is a very scary time indeed. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Sophie. Thanks for having me. That was Sophie Johnston, Commissioner with the National Youth Commission. She helped us unpack the proposed uni fee restructure and how it will affect graduate employment. That's right, but do not turn that dial because we are going to be chatting to a lawyer from Australia's first trans-led legal service. You heard it right. Here's Venom by Little Sims. Enjoy. You're listening to FBI. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Back chat, your alternative to talk back. Last week, Australia's first ever transgender legal service staffed by trans and gender diverse lawyers was officially launched. The Roberta Perkins Law Project seeks to address the specific legal needs of the community from their base in Melbourne. So far, the legal service has helped over 50 people and counting for free. We're joined by Sam Elkin, writer, activist and lawyer at the Roberta Perkins Law Project to tell us what they're doing there and how other states can follow suit. Hi, Sam. Thanks for talking to us today. Thanks so much. So let's start here. What's the Roberta per- what is the Roberta Perkins Law Project and what legal services are you providing? Yeah, so it's a partnership between my organisation, which is St Kilda Legal Service, down in St Kilda in Melbourne, and Transgender Victoria. And um, we were funded by the City of Melbourne's Social Innovation Partnership grants to work together to try and target the unmet legal needs of the trans and gender diverse community residing in Victoria. So in the first few months of our service, we've dealt with many, many different legal issues from discrimination and employment and healthcare, um, the rights of trans prisoners and, um, you know, the everyday issues that people have around minor criminal offences, Centrelink appeals, stuff like that too. So who was Roberta Perkins and why was the Law Project named after them? Yeah, Roberta Perkins um, was actually from Sydney and um, will be well known to many of your listeners as a trailblazing um, sociologist, a a trans woman um, who engaged in some of the first discrimination, like anti-discrimination cases um, in Sydney and was also a sex worker activist who did heaps of um, really early peer support um, throughout the Sydney area and is just an absolute... um, you know, titan of um, Australian writing, um, particularly around gender and sexuality and the rights of sex workers. And we just don't think that enough people know about Roberta Perkins. So when we had our visioning day um, to find out what people wanted us to call our service and what, you know, they wanted it to be about, um, this suggestion came up that we name it after Roberta Perkins. It's also a bit of a shout-out to the um, Sylvia Riviera Law Project, which is in New York City, which has a you know abolitionist approach to um, the law and is very much focusing on trying to get people who are affected by the legal issue involved in campaigning for change. So I guess we're trying to honour those two legacies, both Roberta Perkins and also what those folks are doing in New York City, a kind of different way of approaching the law. 
So, Sam, why are trans and gender-led legal services vital? I think that services that um, are staffed or volunteered with people who are also affected by the issues can be really, really important because... Obviously, you know, the simple answer is that we're more likely to be, you know, connected to communities, so might be able to build more informal, like, referral pathways. So, you know, it can be a little stressful, but, um, you know, as a trans person myself, like, I'm often getting contacted on, you know, non-traditional platforms, so, like, Facebook, Instagram, stuff like that, people wanting to know how they can get support. And, you know, as I'm a member of the community, in some ways I can be more trusted than, you know, going to a mainstream service where you might feel like you're going to get misgendered or misunderstood or, you know, your life being turned into kind of a stereotype which you never intended. So I think there's that. But also, you know, I want this project to be a place where, you know, young queer and trans people can come to actually, you know, think, wow, I could work here. You know, this could be my job. This could be my career. And, um, you know, see a pathway to employment and to engaging in, you know, career-defining law reform work as well. Well, you, you kind of touched on it earlier, but what needs and areas are coming up in casework at the moment? Yeah, so as I mentioned, discrimination is a big issue. Obviously, um, the religious discrimination bill discussion that we've had, you know, over the last year or whatever it's been now, has, you know, given people lots to think about in terms of the discrimination that does still exist, particularly in relation to healthcare. So we've had clients come in who have been refused um, services from a chemist, you know, on the grounds that the chemist doesn't want to provide hormone replacement therapy. Um, We've had people who've been, you know, sacked because of, um, they might be genderqueer and, and wearing a, a more feminine gender presentation at work. You know, we've we've had all kinds of issues like that. So discrimination is a big issue. There's also the big issue of where trans and gender diverse prisoners are placed when they're incarcerated. Um, in Victoria and I know in New South Wales as well, you know, we're not still there yet with the government necessarily respecting people's gender identities when they are incarcerated. So that's a big issue that we're working on at the moment as well. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swatha and Shami. We're speaking with Sam Elkin from the Roberta Perkins Law Centre on the unique legal issues in the trans and gender diverse community. Now, Sam, the pandemic added extra strain on the community. Now that Victoria is headed towards a second coronavirus wave, could you touch on some of the legal issues experienced during lockdown? Yeah, I think that any issue that affects somebody in their home um, is more likely to be exacerbated by the pandemic. So obviously you've got, you know, job losses throughout the country, which sadly will continue, and that then is going to lead to, you know, rent arrears and eviction matters. So we've seen an increase in people wanting support around, you know, rent evictions and stuff like that. We've also seen... Um, really big delays in the court system dealing with family violence matters. So, you know, we've got clients whose matters have been pushed back right through to October. So you've got a really high level of anxiety there where somebody might not be living in a most safe environment and they're not even able to get their court matters dealt with, you know, until towards the end of the year. And I think that as, you know, I hope this doesn't happen, but if we experience, you know, a, a another second wave or an escalation of the first wave here in Victoria, we're probably going to see more delays, which is going to lead to more stress and um, more exacerbation of the, um, you know, family violence-related law proceedings that we're already seeing. 
You've recently noticed an influx in clients seeking advice over the federal government's religious discrimination bill, which has temporarily delayed due to the pandemic. Why is the bill a timely concern again? I think that the pandemic has made a lot of people think about discrimination in healthcare. It's made them think, geez, if this hospital does get overrun, are they going to give me a ventilator or are they going to um, prioritise you know, a person without a disability or who is cisgendered as opposed to transgender, um, you know, who is <laughs> doesn't have complex mental health and chronic illnesses, things like that. And so I think discrimination in healthcare has been front and centre with a lot of people's thinking. And, you know, when going to chemists at the moment, you know, I know particularly in the first few weeks it was really stressful. Nobody knew what was going on. There was a high level of anxiety, I think, for everybody when accessing any kind of healthcare services. So... You know, it's in those moments when the system's under pressure and individuals are under pressure um, and, you know, if they have some natural biases or, you know, like some particular ideas which means that they don't particularly want to serve particular kinds of customers because of their protected attributes, um, you know, that's where discrimination can occur. So I think that's why, you know, it would be a great time for the federal government to, you know, kill the bill and say, we don't want this, we want more people accessing healthcare, not less. So the Roberta Perkins Law Project is based in Melbourne. Do you think this type of service will gain traction in other states? Yeah, well, you know, I should say that we've actually drawn a lot of inspiration from um, New South Wales ourselves. So the Inner City Legal Centre um, over in Kings Cross, they have a transgender law centre, which is a partnership between Denton's, which is a big commercial law firm, and the Inner City Legal Centre, so trans and gender diverse clients. Um, have been able to get um, specialist legal advice there for well over a year now. So we really tip our hat off to them and we'd love to be, you know, um, just the next one to get a trans law service. We'd love to see, you know, Queensland, um, the ACT, WA, you know, all, we, ne- we need this all around the country. There's really no difference between, you know, any of us all around Australia. We, we all need this specialist support. Finally, what long-term goals is the Law Project working towards? A few things. I guess there's specific law reform stuff that we want that um, I kind of touched on, you know, around prisoners' rights. We really want to see that. Um, We want to change our Victorian anti-discrimination law to include non-binary gender identities and also to recognise intersex people at law. But we also want to be an inspiration for, you know, a generation of people who might be studying law that might be trans or gender diverse or gender questioning to actually work towards making our profession more inclusive because I think it'll be no surprise um, to any of you to hear that, you know, the legal profession can be a little old-fashioned 